Welcome to the Endurance Athlete Podcast. I'm Dan Schamberg, and my co-host Greg is once again out of commission. He will be back next week, but our goal here on the Endurance Athlete Podcast is to hear stories, get inspired from athletes uh, across the spectrum of endurance sports, and just maybe that may motivate you to do one of two things, right? It could be to inspire and motivate you to push and challenge yourself to the next level or to take your goals to the next level, or it may make you think there are a lot of crazy athletes out there who would do anything for a dopamine hit, which includes riding a bike 3,000 miles as part of a team across the lower 48 with seven other crazy people. Uh, and that brings me to our guest today, Mark Julian, who is training to do exactly that. Mark, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. I don't think that I can give you the intro that I think will do you justice but I'm going to try. So feel free to interject at any point during this uh, quick introduction. But um, in 2018, Mark and his wife, you had your first child. And less than four weeks later, you were diagnosed with stage four cancer. And you battled through that. And this past December in 2020, you celebrated two years cancer free. And if that wasn't enough, you decided you needed a major goal for 2021. And so Mark has put together a team of what I gather eight strangers, essentially, who are all either cancer survivors or have been impacted by cancer. And you guys are competing in the 2021 race across America, which, as I mentioned before, is a little over 3000 mile road race from Oceanside, California, just up the street from where I am here in uh, Encinitas, California, to Annapolis, Maryland. And Mark, you have not just one goal, right? You've got two goals. The, the first goal is you guys want to raise over half a million dollars for childhood cancer research uh, through a nonprofit that you started uh, called Ram 21. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So there's sort of two goals to the overall one is a selfish one and, and one is really to help uh, kids out that have been struck by cancer. Obviously, uh, having gone through the whole process of treatment, radiation and chemotherapy, it's highly destructive uh, to your body beyond any uh, by beyond anything I could have ever imagined prior to that. So having never had cancer, I was a little ignorant to um, what exactly happens and having gone through it uh, in coming out the other side, you realize uh, that, that the impact is unbelievable, not only emotionally, but physically and everything else. And so when I went through that process, I decided that, uh, you know, I started thinking about children and how do people go through this and people who don't have support, how do they make it through? And I realized that at some point, I'm not sure when, but during the, the four months of the worst part of the, the treatment, I sort of decided that I had to do something um, to find a silver lining in the overall, um, you know, treatment and, and the experience that I was going through. And uh, so I eventually sort of started researching children and realized that there's just a, an enormous um, uh, need for, for help for children that have cancer. It's, a, you know, 43 kids a day are uh, diagnosed with cancer. So there's parents like me, and I don't know if you have children, but the thought of going into a doctor's office and being told your child has cancer is, is devastating. But even worse than that is the fact that only 10 drugs have ever been made ever on this planet wow. to treat um children that have cancer. So what they're really doing now is just taking adult drugs, modifying the, the dosage and, uh, and the treatment to try and put that into a kid, which is just mind boggling to me that we're, we're doing that. You know, we have 
um, special formula for babies when they're born so that they don't drink regular milk. And we have, you know, uh, soap that we're worried about damaging their skin. So they have baby soap. And yet we take these medications that are basically killing you, putting them into kids and hoping for the best that they don't damage their organs permanently. Or, you know, I mean, it's just, it just seemed crazy to me. I just couldn't believe that this was actually happening. And the more I read into it, the more I realized, like, I got to do something. And wow. uh, what better way to do it than, than do REM and, and show people. You know, that's a great point because I've, I've never really thought about it from that perspective. You know, we all know that children get cancer, you know, you know, leukemia and other types of cancers, but you don't really think about, you know, how we, like you said, we, we have baby soap, we have baby, you know, toothpaste and baby, you know, food and all these things, but you don't have, you know, cancer uh, drugs specifically designed for children. So that's, that's something that I didn't know. And, and I think I would imagine now that most people don't know that. Um, I would agree. So, so doing this race with the, the goal of raising half a million dollars to go to, I think the national pediatric uh, cancer society yeah, or foundation, foundation. Right. the leukemia and lymphoma society um, specifically to try to, to get uh, help for children. Um, that's, that's a, that's a noble goal. Um, uh, they're, they're very close to getting the 11th drug. So they're, they're okay. almost completing testing and they're getting really close to actually having an 11th you know, medication to treat uh, a child, which again is, is ridiculous. There, there are hundreds of drugs for adults and we're talking about 11 for, for kids, which it just, it, there's just something upside down in that overall. Yeah. And in addition to that, you also, like you mentioned, you have a selfish goal, right. which not only do you guys want to do this epic event, uh, you know, this multi-day, uh, five days plus for the teams of eight, you also, you want to win the event. Right. I mean, winning is, is just me being very competitive and saying, like, if I'm going to do it, at least I'm going to try and win. It may not happen, but certainly we want to go in there with the mindset that we can win. Yeah. Um, the selfish part is really after you finish treatment, you kind of wonder if you're ever going to be the same again. You know, when I when I was done, I was down 30 pounds. I lost 15 pounds of muscle to, to go up the stairs. I was winded by the time I got to the top. You know, I would forget even how to write my name on a check. I, my brain just like everything was so um, damaged and, and, uh, exhausted that I just wanted to do something that was going to prove to myself that I was bigger and better and better than I was prior to, you know, getting sick. And, um, I just, I don't know where it came from, but I just sort of said, you know, started looking around online and, you know, what are some cool things that I could do? And eventually I sort of hit on REM and said, that sounds totally ridiculous. Let me see if I could find seven other ding dongs that want to, uh, you know, try it with me and, uh, managed to find those guys and, We've got a, a crew of 12, so we're, we're 20 people from all over the world um, coming together to, to race REM. None of us ever met in person, okay. and uh, we're going to meet in March for our first training camp, and then we're off in June to, uh, to do the races as well, perfect that's, trainers. That's great. I think a lot of you know, if, uh, people listen to previous episodes, it's a very common theme of what, what's the craziest thing that I could do that's in my wheelhouse, whether it's swimming. Uh, Sabrina Houston is going for the triple crown of this year, finishing the triple crown of swimming. She'll be swimming uh, the English channel later this year. Um, you know, I've got some ultra marathon goals that most people think are just silly to even think about, you know, you, you're doing the race across America um, is, is a lofty goal. Um, so before we kind of dive into to Ram 21 uh, foundation and kind of coming together to do this, and let's get a little background about, you know, what your life was like prior to, to getting cancer. You know, were you an athlete? 
know, kind of what was your, what were your priorities? I mean, you're going to laugh. I'm, I'm the least experienced person on my team. Basically, the furthest I've ever ridden on my bike was doing some centuries. So I did, uh, you know, a couple of hundred mile races and, and that's it. I was into triathlon for a little bit. And then uh, let's say three years before I got sick, I sort of faded out of that. So really, I'm like a newbie, newbie, newbie um, to certainly even to endurance. I mean, I, the amount of stuff that I've learned in the last I've been training for a year now. And uh, what I've learned is, is mind boggling. I had no clue <laughs> of any of this stuff. So I was like completely ignorant to absolutely everything. And it's been such an awesome experience uh, to find out about myself and how you train and your body and eating and, you know, the myriad yeah. of, of things that you learned. If, if my experience has taught me anything is you won't even learn most of it until you do the race. Right. Right. Um, Cause that's when you learn all the, all the things. And then some point during that race, you'll say, this is horrible. I never want to do this again. And then you'll think about like, no, no, I wanted, I'm going to do this again, but this, I'm going to do it even better. Even if you guys do win, right. It's just this, this mindset I think endurance athletes have. Um, so, so I, I agree. Like, I mean, we're all big, we all start from somewhere. So why, what better way than just to pick something, you know, that's, that's challenging that you can aim for and, and go after it. Um, bigger go home is my theory. So why not start with the ultimate and, uh, in cycling insurance races. So go for it, right? Make it happen. Yeah, for sure. Now, so, you know, you were diagnosed in what, middle of 2018, is that correct? Yeah, it was June of uh, 2018. Yeah. And so you had just had uh, a child, a daughter, correct? Yeah, my first child was born, Ella. She was born on uh, on May 10th. I had known that I had an inkling. I had a large uh, tumor in my neck and uh-huh. um, they weren't really sure what it was. And sort of as my wife was getting closer and closer to giving birth. Um, I was supposed to go for a biopsy and I just sort of put it off because I, I, I frankly didn't want to find out that I had cancer right as you know my child was being born. And once um, she came out and she was okay and she was healthy, then I got a biopsy and you know a week and a half later, uh, I was told I had cancer. So it was like the highs of the highs and then to the ultimate low. And not just that cancer, stage four, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, it was, a big, it was a big tumor. Big tumor. Oh man. So, and, and for anybody that wants to get more information and even some pictures about, you know, your, your journey. And I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about kind of how your perspective has changed during that kind of what your thoughts were. Um, but you can uh, go to, and I'll put this in the episode notes, ram21.com. It's R-A-A-M 21.com. Uh, and you go into pretty uh, in-depth about your, your chemotherapy and your, your cancer treatment process there. But, you know, give us a little bit of an insight about that shift, you know, once you got the results to, you know, from where you were thinking, to, you know, I've got this brand new child, it's life is great to now crap, you know, what's, what's going to happen. Right. I mean, everything just stops, right. Your world basically comes to a halt and uh, just like in the movies, you basically, everything goes silent around you. And I was in the, my parking lot of my office in my truck and um, my, my doctor had called me to say, Hey, you know, you got cancer. It's okay. You know, and all I heard was you've got cancer. And uh, so you did the first process, you know, the few weeks where you're trying to figure out exactly what's going to happen. And uh, I'm not really a sugar coating kind of guy. So when I started setting up my team of doctors, which was surprised me that you need all this huge team of people behind you, which I, I didn't know anything about, obviously being hundred percent ignorant, 
on cancer. They sort of lay out what's going to happen to you. And um, I remember going to my radiologist and, you know, I said, listen, uh, I'm not much on, you know, sugarcoating stuff. Like I really want to know what's going to happen. So I can imagine the absolute worst. And then hopefully it'll be a little bit better and it won't be as horrific as I think. And uh, so he laid it out. Originally, I thought I'd have be two weeks, I'd be down and I'd be able to fake it all the way through, run my business, you know, still deal with clients and, and, uh, and we'll see where it goes. And, and, you know, within a couple of weeks, I realized that there was no way that was going to happen. I mean, I had a feeding tube in and I had a chemo port and they were like, be prepared to be down and out. Um, you know, for probably two months and it, it crushed me for about four. So yeah. the treatment process is so um, it's like medieval torture. They take a, a mask. Uh, it's like a hot plastic mask and they pull it over your face and then it cools off and it, it basically holds your face to a table. So they bolt you to a table Holy and cow. this is how you do your radiation. So for half an hour, you're on this table every single day, five days a week for seven weeks and it just holds you in position so that they can just target the, the small little area that they need to hit. But it's the most, I mean, claustrophobic. So it's the most terrifying thing to be strapped to a table. You cannot move. You can barely breathe. I would close my eyes for the whole treatment until it was over. And then they'd take the mask off. Otherwise I would just absolutely freak out. It was the, that was the worst part. So when they bolt you to the table, essentially, how long are you in that, in, in that position? You're for 20 minutes. So you lie down, they, they okay. click into place and then the girls leave the room and the machine starts and the table rotates around and the machine sort of spins around and hits you every possible way, uh, specifically right on your tumor. And then, uh, and then you get up off the table. That, that part doesn't hurt at all. It's all the side effects and stuff like that that you go through during that process, like getting a sore throat, you know, times a thousand. So it, it, uh, it basically just slowly but surely starts closing your throat down that you can't eat. So then you got to get on a feeding tube because you, you got to get some food into your body. And it's, okay. it's a real process. That's for sure. Oh, that, yeah, that definitely, it's, it's not like spraining an ankle or tearing a muscle where you, like you said, you thought you'd be out for a couple of weeks and then you get back to it. This is, you know, it's, it's life or death, death. It is, it is life or death. It's the worst by far. It's the worst thing I've ever endured in my entire life because it doesn't end. Like it just goes on and on and it gets worse and worse. And you finally ring the bell, which is an amazing, you know, cathartic moment where you get to ring your bell when you're finished your radiation treatments and then it still goes on for another four weeks. Your, your, your throat is completely shut and, you know, it only gets worse. And then slowly you start feeling better. And uh, yeah, that, those, were, those were tough days. That's for sure. It was a good, it was a solid four months where you're, I mean, in a lot of pain. Okay. And, and so not only is that a huge, I can't even begin to imagine, you know, physical trauma to your body, but I would imagine also that your, your mindset has to change. I mean, the beauty, I say like you got to at some point you have to find the silver lining because it's so it's just so terrible that if you just drown yourself in sorrow, you, it'll make it even worse. So I just started, you know, finding good things that could come out of it. You know, one of the, the amazing things was having my daughter and being able to spend four months with her as comatose as I might have been. I got to watch her grow up, which if I was still working and just doing my regular scenario, I never would have spent as much time with her. So uh, that was awesome. You know, I got to see my mom more because she'd come by and see me and she came down from Canada, which was great. So like anything I could find to keep me feeling positive about everything that was going on was really sort of my key to, you know, 
they're not keeping hope because I, I knew I was going to be okay. The doctors told me, you know, I had a whatever 10% chance of it not working. So there was a high probability it was going to work. Okay. It was just getting through the days of, of radiation and chemo, which were just, you know, they were horrific. So, you know, you find the silver lining and uh, it, it seemed to make life and, and time go by a little bit quicker. And one thing here as endurance athletes, Greg and I've talked about, and a lot of other uh, ultra runners is my group that we like, we wouldn't be able to do what we do, these lofty goals and aspirations of, Hey, Bridget, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out for the weekend and run a 50 miler, or I'm going to train for 10 hours over the night. Um, like you have to have your support crew, which, you know, in my case is, is my spouse is my wife. I wouldn't be able to do any of it without her. And so what was it like, or how did your wife react for that? Like, how was, you know, did she handle this or, Oh man, my wife was a rock star in the whole thing. She was so awesome. We just decided after I was diagnosed, we decided we cried it out for a night. And then we just said, we got to suck it up and we'll listen to whatever the doctors say. We'll do exactly what they want. And we're just going to get through this. And uh, that was it. We just sort of got through it. And, uh, but she was just amazing. I mean, a huge support system for me. I would say people who, who say they're cancer survivors, it's not just somebody who was diagnosed. Like my wife is a cancer survivor because to watch somebody go through that is probably more difficult than actually going through it yourself to, to watch somebody deteriorate like that is, it is, it must be enormously painful um, for them to go through. So she's a trooper. She's the best. All right. And so now you've, you've gone through four months of chemotherapy. So it's now what late uh, 2018. Yeah, we're moving in and we finished up everything and I was started to recover at the end of October. And so we we're moving into November and things were getting more normal. And then you sit and wait, you have to wait. Uh, what, how long did I have to wait? I think it was almost like two months or so to get your PET scan, which is what tells you if the cancer is gone or not. So okay, that was December 13th that I finally got the results that you know, the cancer was gone. And uh, you know, there's a, obviously an enormous sigh of relief. So during that time, you know, when you're waiting for the, the cancer to go away, at what point and you said you started doing research about children and learning about how there's only, you know, 10 drugs for them and how, you know, children get, or you said, was it one, a child every 43 minutes or 43 a day? 43 a day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at what point did like the thought pop into your mind that I need to do something and then, or it needs to be something challenging, you know, as well. Right. The first part was just, to, like I said before, it was sort of like after you're beat up and you, you, you feel terrible, you wonder if you're ever going to feel good again. And so ironically enough, I had my feeding tube taken out and my chemo port. And that weekend I used to race go-karts. So that weekend I went out and raced and uh, just to prove to myself that I was still alive, which was a, an enormous mistake, but I, I had to do it. And then I ended up spending a week and a half in bed after that because it just crushed me. Oh, really? So, so you're, 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 you're just like, man, I got to do something. Yeah, your body couldn't handle it. I was shaking. I couldn't finish the last race because it was so hot and I, my body was just not ready. But every day you would be like, oh, I feel so much better. I'm back to normal. And then you realize a year later, that you're like, oh yeah, now I'm actually feeling better. Like all those months where I thought I was feeling better and I was back to normal, you kind of lose your, I guess your baseline of what, it, what feels good because every day it feels a little bit better. And then you're just like clueless as to the fact that like just how badly your, your body has been beat up. All my doctors were shocked that I was doing the stuff that I was doing because they, they thought it just seemed crazy that I was feeling so good. And I really, in, in hindsight, I look back, I go, I wasn't feeling good at all. <laughs> I guess it was just my brain telling me like, go do something, get out, you know, feel better. 
So then once you started doing gore courts, then you say, all right, I need to. So you, you, we talked slightly before we started the podcast, you had been a cyclist uh, prior to, to 2018. And then you kind of uh, got out of it. Uh, When you decided to, to have, you know, reach for a lofty goal, did you know right away that it was going to be cycling based or did you just kind of like throw darts against the wall and see what sticks? Yeah. I mean, I thought I started looking around thinking like, you know, what, what could I do? I'm not a huge runner. I'd done uh, you know, a marathon and uh, my legs are more like concrete posts than they are anything that sort of resembles a runner. So uh, I knew that maybe that was going to be a real challenge for me. And uh, you know, swimming wasn't, it was a decent, you know, activity that I did, but I was never that strong. I was more like a barge in the water. So I started thinking like, what did I really enjoy about triathlon? And it was really getting on the bike, the speed and just being able to listen to the wheels and the chain and stuff like that. That w- was a huge part of my enjoyment. And so I said, okay, I got to find something that's revolves around cycling that I can do that's athletic and can force me to train for it. And, and it's going to be like a, an enormous challenge. And um, I don't know how I found around, but I just started looking around at stuff. Was it like climbing uh, Mount Kilimanjaro or doing something? You know, I was just looking at all sorts of stuff in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep. And, uh, and I just sort of came on that. And I thought like, that seems like a really cool event. And, and then I started thinking like, how could I, you know, tie other people into it? I didn't want a solo Ram having mm-hmm. no experience in endurance um, cycling. That was probably a, you know, completely ridiculous. So then I thought, okay, why don't I try and get maybe a four man or an eight man team together? And it would be a bunch of guys that have all experienced cancer and we'll do it for, you know, cancer research. And it just started piecing together in my head as I went. And I think, like any athlete I'm sure when you pick something you know for a while there you start thinking you know am I really going to do it and if I really declare that I'm going to do it then I'm stuck doing it and so I started talking to a few organizations saying you know I'm thinking about doing this thing just to try and gauge you know their level of are you nuts like you've never done this or they're like yeah go for it and uh, so I worked my way through that and then I told the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society hey I'm going to do this thing I'm going to raise money for cancer you know, can you find me some other cyclists? Cause they have a decent cycling program. You know, can you find me other yeah. cyclists in, in the U S that would be interested in doing that? And so they found me, I think three or four guys that uh, were game and the rest of them came off of uh, Facebook uh, on the Ram site. And I just sort of said, you know, guys, are you game? Like, let's do this. And uh, everyone was like, yeah, let, let's go for it. And we've lost a few team members and gained a few new ones and lost them over the last year. But the, the, the core is still there, the, the core guys that were a part of it. And um, it's, it's amazing, just the people that have gotten involved. You know, we have guys in the UK, all over the US, we have crew from the UK. I mean, it's just really cool that uh, the amount of people that have sort of stepped up and said, let me help you. And now that I know what it entails, I'm, I'm so thankful that I actually have experience on my team, just the logistics of moving 20 people across the country uh, 24 hours a day for for five days is a huge undertaking. So I'm, I'm very grateful. Yeah. I was wondering about how you, how you, how you get, you know, seven other cyclists to join you and also the crew, you know, like, what's it like? You just put an ad out there for, for crazy, looking for other crazy people who want to ride across the country, you know, must have a bike type of (laughs) (laughs) must've had cancer and must have bicycle and want to do like some ridiculous race and train for a year and a half to do it. That was basically almost, that was almost my stance on Ram. I just said, Hey, listen, I'm a cancer survivor. I'm, I'm trying to get a bunch of guys together that have been through cancer to, to race the eight man team. And, uh, you know, right away, I think I got four or five people that said, you know, I'm thinking about it and I'm interested. Yeah. I had this type of cancer. 
And uh, it just started from there and it snowballed. Some of those people joined us, some didn't, but they passed me on to other people. And then we're getting we a team. I was kind of like, okay, now I got to get a crew chief. Like I got to find somebody who has experience in doing this. And um, we managed to find this guy, Paul. And so he's done it a few times with some solo riders and some two men's. So he's been helping us out. And then after that, just like everything else started falling into place. Yeah. And, and like you said, uh, before finding a race director or a crew director is important. Like a huge proportion of the race is dependent on logistics, right? It's not just you cycling and taking turns, right? Uh, you know, right. there's, there's logistics and this is what I've got from Matt Faulkner, who we taught it with in episode five, who did uh, Ram, sorry if I forget the year, 2015, 2016, 17, somewhere around there with uh, team Viasat. And, yeah. um, and so there's logistics, there's transitions. And so now you've got your core of eight people, uh, a cyclist now, and, and you've got your crew chief. Like, how is your team? And, and you guys all live all over the, the place, America and, and England. Like, how are you preparing for, for these logistical challenges right now? So as far as the training goes, most of the guys have coaches. A couple of the guys are, are ex-semi-pro uh, riders, so they're doing their, their own training plan. But um, the other guys, we all have, uh, you know, trainers. Myself, personally, I have a nutritionist who helped my stomach get back to normal because of uh, all the, the chemo, and it messed up my stomach and all the painkillers and everything. It really trashed my gut, so I had to get that, you know, put back together. And then, um, so I have a trainer. I have a guy in the gym that helps me out, and then... Uh, I'm just sort of, you know, I listen to, you know, George tells me do this and I do it, who, who's my cycling coach. And he lays out all my plans on, uh, and I just make it happen, right? Like, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I'm just hoping that he knows what he's doing <laughs> and he tells me I'm doing well. So away we go. And that's basically what everyone's doing. So that part is the easy part, right? The logistics yeah. of, of moving these 20 people, getting people fed and, you know, most people may not know, but in the race, you only ride, you ride 15 minutes. So we split the team into two. So in theory, you have 10 people sleeping, 10 people riding. And so when the people are sleeping, they're stopped, obviously, but the rest of the, the crew, the eight, the 10 people are still going forward. So you have four riders every 15 minutes, you're rotating and putting out a new rider. So I would ride for 15, rest for another uh, 45, ride for 15. And you do that for eight hours and then the next crew comes in, the entire team swaps out and you keep going. But if you're sleeping for four hours, that means the guys are, are potentially, you know, a hundred miles ahead. So now yeah. you've got to chase after them to get back up to them to, in order to switch out the crews and keep moving. And the whole thing just keeps rolling along. So Paul Majors is our crew chief and, and, uh, and Chris last, who's actually won, uh, the eight men on, uh, on Ram a few years back, he's our assistant crew chief. And these guys are geniuses with all this kind of stuff. They're just, this is like an actual, you know, coming on like a Le Mans or like a formula one race team put together. It's not just eight guys and two people driving a, a minivan driving across the country. You guys have organized this, you know, you're serious and it's, it's production. I mean, they have transition areas that they know we're stopping here. The motorhome is going to be there, which, which guys we're trying to develop now, which four are going to hit some of the bigger mountains in Colorado and how that's all going to work and how the switch is at. I mean, it's very, very, it's way more tactical and way more um, logistical than I, you know, it ever crossed my mind. Sort of as I've gotten into it, I'm sort of, I'm shocked at 
um, how stupid I was to sort of take this thing on at the start and be naive to the fact that like, how does this, I never even crossed my mind. How does this work? You know, he's now like, you can't back out now. You just, you have to, to go with yeah, it. I'm ready to go. Like he's got, you know, four vans and we've got a motor home and we've got this and that and like all these people. And, and thank God he's taking care of the entire thing. So I'm not even on those zoom calls. He basically, he just, he's coordinating the whole thing with all these people, which is great. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about like training and how people train and, but, and now a perspective that I don't understand and you kind of alluded to it, like you've recovered from, from cancer um, and you're, you're training, but your body is not the same as it was, you know, two years ago, even. And you mentioned how your, your gut completely changed. I, I, I'm wondering, in addition to the normal challenges of training for an event like this, a five day continuous event, like how has, you know, having had cancer, like made more changing? To train. Right. So, so when I was totally done all my treatments, I basically lost 30 pounds, 15 pounds of muscle. So I was like a shell of the person I was. And as far as, I mean, uh, you know, your muscles basically are shot. So you've been sitting on the couch or lying in bed for, for months. So one, it took me about six months just to get back to what I consider maybe a somewhat of a baseline where I was able to actually ride, let's say 10 or 15 miles and not feel like I was going to keel over. And that's really, once I got to that point, that's when I got a, my first coach who, um, who trained me for about three months. And unfortunately he didn't really, I probably didn't give him enough guidance as to like how I was feeling and maybe the feedback, but he, he drove me off a cliff. So I basically, I just overtrained. And so all my cortisol levels went way down and my body stopped producing cortisol. And basically I, I couldn't actually get my body going again. So at that point I had just hired a nutritionist to sort of just guide me in food and then she was like, you know, we should probably test, you know, whatever, uh, do a poop test basically, right? To it's see what's bacteria. going on in your gut, which was super important. Just out of coincidence, she said, you know, what, you know, what were you taking? I said, listen, I didn't take any of the, the, the meds. The only thing I did was Tylenol, but I was eating about 40 of them a day. Um, so she said, well, we should just check out your stomach. So we checked it out and she was horrified at, at the levels of bacteria, all the bad bacteria that was in my stomach, all the good stuff wasn't there. I mean, it was upside down. And, um, so it took us a while to sort of recoup that, which helped me regain my energy levels and everything. So that was a, sort of a, a slowdown in the overall training process. And then, uh, I hired a new coach and uh, George has been awesome. So I've been super pumped that there's not a day that goes by that I'm not super excited to get on the bike tomorrow. I'm going to do four hours and like, I'm, I'm just excited to get on the bike and go. And, uh, he's just slowly been building me up. You know, the, the big thing is trust obviously in your coach and having faith that they're they're training you the right way. And like I said, I don't know what I don't know. So I'm just, I'm entrusting this person to, to make me a go where I got to go. And uh, I just listen to him and we make it happen. You know, the nutritionist has got my gut back to where it should be. So that's awesome. And now I feel like, you know, probably in the last four months that like now I'm really training. And uh, unfortunately, funny enough, at Christmas, I blew my back up I finally got my tri bike and uh, decided, you know, I'm feeling good. I'm doing five hour rides on Saturdays. I'm good. So I got on my tri bike. I did uh, one training session, interval training on, uh, on the tri bike and my back exploded. So for three weeks over Christmas, I could barely walk. Yeah. So, cause I, had, the, I don't ride uh, bikes very much, but the, 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 you're a lot more forward, right. On a tri bike. You're sort of laid down, laid down flat. So yeah. the, instead of your legs going around and your back being very stable on a road bike, on a tri bike, there's a lot more rocking back and forth. 
and just the rocking back and forth the, the middle part of my back just locked up and then it went straight down to uh my hips my pelvis like i mean literally over christmas i could barely move it was the worst and so we've had you know some ups and downs but now i know and you know had i asked my trainer you know how should i integrate my tri bike he would have told me like don't do an hour and a half on your first stint on your tri bike which i didn't do and, and now i know <laughs> lesson learned you know ask before you do and so I'm a strength and conditioning coach by trade and, you know, and for running, and I imagine this goes, uh, is very similar with, with cycling. The most important component of training is your mileage, right? Getting out there and, and practicing your sport. Um, but you, and you've also got a nutritionist that helps you, you know, with your gut. And, and that's something I've never thought about. Is that something you think people should do? You know, most endurance athletes, Look, it's, that it's was really that just... easy to do a poop test. I mean, as gross as it is or whatever, it's basically, uh, you send it in and they send you back your results and you can see, you may have pylori in your, in your stomach or something like that. So some of the bad bacteria, there's good and bad, obviously you need the good stuff and less of the bad. So depending on how you eat or the things you're taking, and it could be in your stomach from who knows, it could be from five or six years ago, unless you wow. treat it it'll always be there. So I was, especially if you have, you know, maybe some back end issues, I would, I would get it done. I mean, it only costs a couple hundred bucks and it's, it's well worth it. Back end issues. That's a very, very uh, polite way of <laughs> saying that. Right. You know, I think about, you know, for my, what I, when I race and train, I eat everything from cheeseburgers to Twinkies to, you know, Coca-Cola and all this thing. And now I'm thinking, man, that, that cannot be good. And I imagine some of that is still in my stomach. So now I'm thinking I need to, I need to have a, a gut check, right? Uh, both it's literally out of just total curiosity too. It's amazing what they can tell you yeah. from, uh, from your poop. It's, it's, it's shocking. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I don't want to go off of that, that right. rabbit hole right there. That could be a whole weird conversation, but, um, but where I was going was strength training, you know, for me is, is quite important. I think for all endurance athletes. Um, so you're, you're also doing strength training in it to supplement your, your riding, correct? Yeah. So I'm in the gym two days a week and I ride, uh, I ride four days a week. Okay. Now, how early do you get up uh, to train now? Cause you, you're, you're back to work. I'm assuming right. you've got family, you've got a, a young kid. So yeah, you know, two now. Oh, two now. Well, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. I've got three. Yeah. So I know how that feels with young. So being a father, you know, working, you've got, you know, family that you want to spend time with as well. How have you kind of adjusted your training in order to meet the demand of this event, as w but not neglect those other commitments? Right. So typically, you're you're keeping me up. So normally, I go to bed at about eight o'clock. Oh gosh. And, uh, I'm up at four every morning. So four o'clock, I, I do some some stuff, and then basically I head out. So I'm out on the road by five, and I'll ride an hour and a half to two and a half, two to two hours about during the week. And then on the weekends, if I'm doing a five hour ride, I'll get up at three and uh, get out so that I'm not back, you know, I'm back by nine, nine thirty, as opposed to getting back around 11 or 1130. So I typically, and I love to ride in the dark, uh, which I find nicer. It feels safer. And uh, I just like getting safer. there when nobody's around. Hmm? I feel safer. That's, that's interesting. Um, you, you can see the cars coming. Like, I, I don't like knowing if yeah. cars are coming, not coming. And that's at a good night, point. there's nobody out there. So you kind of yeah. just do your own thing, which is nice. It, but and I think that for from a race like what you're doing, you're going to be most people train during the day only. So when they come to an event like an ultra marathon or, you know, a, a Ram, where now you're going to be working hard and competing in the middle of the night. 
And a lot of people are not used to doing that. And so I think getting up early, like next weekend, a buddy of mine are going to run walk from nine o'clock in the, at night to like nine in the morning, right. just to get that nighttime training. So I think that's a very important thing that, you know, just, you may not start at midnight, but getting up at three or four in the morning consistently it gets your body used to that. Cause you're going to be exhausted in, in those wee early morning hours. I find it harder to do daytime than it is to do nighttime now. Okay. So if I, if I had to ride in the afternoon in the scorching heat, is much more difficult, I find, than just getting up early in the morning and going out on a cold ride. It's funny. It's, it sort of changes your whole perspective. I almost have to now start training in the afternoon because I'm doing too much early morning training. <laughs> no, I've started to get up early to get my consistency. I have a big race in July as well. So, you know, getting my miles in in the morning before work, before family. So I, before I can run to work, work for a little bit, and then run home. Right. So I just got a few more questions with you and then we'll let you get to sleep. I don't want to keep you up and ruin a Saturday training for you, but um, let's see, you know, we talked a little bit about your race strategy, your goals is shaving your legs, a team requirement. Uh, I don't shave my legs. So no, yeah. <laughs> I understand why some people, I mean, the arrow thing, I think is a, a bunch of BS or whatever. And like, I can't imagine that slows you down, but if you're going to get a lot of massages on your legs, if you have a lot of hair, I mean, it's pretty painful. If you're doing deep tissue, it can be tearing the hairs out. So I trim them. I don't shave them. So it's not a, it's not a prerequisite. Although I think a couple of our team members do shave their legs. You're not going to bring that up at the next team meeting. Like, Hey, should we all shave our legs? We're going to let it grow like the beards and playoffs. We're going to say like, listen, let's let our hair, our legs get real hairy and see who has the hairiest legs. <laughs> so uh, a couple of questions left. Um, so you haven't met in person your, your first team. So tell me a little bit about how that's going to work for the, like it is now the end of February when we're recording this, the race is in middle of June uh, in starting here in, in San Diego or in Oceanside. So you're going to meet in for the first time with your team in March. Right. So everyone's flying in or driving in and uh, we'll have our first training sort of weekend of four day um, riding session. We're going to do some mock uh, races on the Saturday so that everyone can get used to jumping on and off the bike and what it's like to sit in the car for 45 minutes before you get back on the bike and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, that's it. The next time we'll be together, will be uh, in June. We'll go out, you know, probably three, four days in advance and uh, do a little more riding together. And then that's it. We're, we're off to the uh, races, as they say. Oh, wow. So, so you're going to meet once as a team. It's great. Now, have you already paired like the, the, you know, the person you're going to be alternating with or the grouping, or is that just down the road? We we're going to decide that here in, uh, in Florida, we just kind of got to gauge, you know, who's strongest, who's not, and, and what our strategy is for, as far as, you know, do we load one team with the strongest guys or do we sort of spread them out between uh, the two? So um, Paul and I are going to figure out, what uh, we think is the best strategy and personalities and all that kind of stuff. So having not been with each other, it's hard to gauge everyone's personality and to see who sort of gets along with who and that kind of thing. Cause being trapped in a van for, for that long, you got to make sure that the, the personalities mesh well. So we'll yeah. figure that out in March and then we'll make the call. And this is kind of an obvious question too. You know, how has, we talked about on our last episode with the race director of the race directors of the San Diego 100 and how coronavirus has affected the last year's event and then going forward this year, what changes has the race organization made or how have you had to adapt or planning to adapt because of 
the, I mean, with COVID, they're coming up with a few new rules. They're doing some different stuff, but they haven't really outlined that yet. I think the biggest challenge for us now is that they canceled the race last year. So it looks like there's going to be more competitors than normal. So to give you an idea, the with Ram, there are four times as many people that attempt Everest every year than actually try this race. So there's only about 175 competitors uh, through in solo, two men, four men, and eight men teams that actually take part. And now we're thinking that there's going to be maybe double because a lot of people have said, you know, oh, I was supposed to race last year. I'm going to race this year. So it's kind of fun. One, it, it ups the level of, uh, you know, competition, but that's what we're really looking at. As far as us and COVID, you know, everyone's getting tested before they come here in March. And hopefully by June, everyone has their, their vaccine, you know, they're vaccinated and, and they're ready to go. I don't know. We'll have to see whether everyone wears masks or not wears masks in the van. I, I don't know. Have you uh, scoped out your competition yet? Other eight man teams? I think I'm briefly looked, there's only like what, eight or 10 eight man teams, something like that. Right. I mean, that's a lot, but yeah. Yeah. So we look around. I'm trying to, I don't really, I'm trying not to get too involved in that because I don't want to either intimidate myself or get too confident. So I'd rather not know who these people are. I've seen a few and then I'd try and stop myself before I start, you know, Googling who they are and what have they done? And Oh my God, that guy's been in like, you know, category, whatever, and cycling and racing. And that guy was in Europe and it sort of starts freaking me out. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to stay out of that stuff. Okay. Well, um, that's kind of really, you know, all the questions I had, and I know you've got to get up uh, there, but I wanted to finish off like, you know, what would you like to, to have people know about, you know, Ram 21 organization, what you're trying to accomplish or just anything in general that you've gone to that you'd love to, to share with people. Right. I mean, ideally, look, it, it's eight guys, old, eight old guys riding bicycles. You know, that's not so intriguing, but I think that the most important thing that we want people to know is that there's there's just a the, the world of cancer is a terrifying thing and certainly for children um the fact that there are only 10 meds for um for these kids it just makes absolutely no sense big pharma isn't spending money on it because there's only sixteen thousand people you know kids that are infected with cancer every year whereas there's the 1.8 million adults so the money goes to the adults and, you know, it just seems like it's very unjust. And as a father and you're a father, the, the thought of being brought into an office and, and being told your kid has cancer is, is devastating enough. And then to find out that really there's not a lot of research being done to help save their life and not impact them, you know, adversely for the rest of their life for as long as that is. Um, it, it's just like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And that's the one thing that I want people to take away. Like we need people to donate. Because, you know, Big Pharma, the government's giving us, gives that 4% of the overall budget that they, they give out to uh, cancer research every year. 4% goes to, to pediatric cancer, which is, is just mind-boggling that how low it is. So we have to step up as people. We have to step up and, and make things happen. And, and that's what we're hoping people will do. Right. Help us fund to, to get another drug out there. So how can people donate? Can they just, uh, where can they go? And how much have you guys raised so far? We're at, uh, our goal is 500. We're at around 100,000 right now. And they can go to ram21.com, R-A-A-M-2-1.com. You click on the donate button and you can donate as much as you can afford to do. And, uh, you know, every penny counts. I know it sounds cliche, but it's very true. You know, whether it's 25 bucks, 50 bucks or 5,000 bucks, it, it's, it's all the, the same to us. You know, it helps us encourage us to, to train harder. And, you know, you're really impacting the life 
of a kid and, and research is what saves people, right? With no money, there's no research, no research. You really, there's no hope. And, uh, and that's what we're really hoping for is that people give these kids hope. Well, Mark, thank you very much for, for joining uh, me and to talk about uh, your experiences and your lofty goals here for 2021. So thank you for joining me. And uh, if you want to go to ram21.com, go that. I'll also put the link in our show notes. And hopefully, Mark, maybe I'll get a chance to see you. I'm not going to ride with you because that's not my, my thing. But I'll wave to you guys when you guys start the big race in Oceanside. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Get some sleep and uh, we'll see you in June. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for listening to the Endurance Athlete Podcast. You can help get the word out several ways. First, subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating. And you can also follow me on Instagram at the Endurance Athlete. And you can be a part of our growing Facebook group, the Endurance Athlete Podcast. Uh, just go to facebook.com slash groups slash the Endurance Athlete. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks.